We're in Matthew 22 this morning. Matthew 22. If you have your Bible, join me there. For us as dimensional beings, to understand a time before time is a very difficult concept. We know that according to Scripture, in the beginning, God. So there was a point in which God was God and there was nothing else. It's almost hard for us when we go back to that moment to begin to even understand how things exist. So as God is there in the beginning, we move from that point on. Now, we began last week to answer a question. Who are we becoming? Who is it that I am based on who I am in Christ? And as we begin to look at this idea of who I'm becoming, we went a step further and we began to say, Becoming is far more important than doing. And in doing, I find my meaning oftentimes. But when I come before God, God is more interested in who I am in relationship to Him than what I do. We said last week that in order for me to be one who is becoming the person that Christ wants me to be, that it's really a matter of my heart. All of my integrity, my strength, everything starts at my beginning of my heart and getting my heart turned towards God. Now, all of that, who I'm becoming, my heart looking towards God and who I am going to be in this life, comes back to answer a simple question that starts in the beginning. When God exists before everything else, why does God make man? If you think about it, we know that God is a triune God. So the Bible teaches us that in the beginning there was God, and the word there is actually a Hebrew word that is Elohim. It's a plurality. We also know that there is the Word, God the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. So there, in eternity past, God as one and yet three. Uh, let's just imagine, we don't know at all that this is how this transpires, but let's just imagine for a second that there's a conversation there. As God is perfect and complete, He has no need of anything. So it is not as if God in His perfect completeness and fellowship and the perfect union of the Trinity goes, man, we're missing something. Oftentimes in life, as humans, we go through life feeling as if we are missing something. As young people, we often will try as children to find some meaning in stuff. And we want this, and I need this, and i got to have this. And, and your kids are always asking for toys. As you get a little bit older, into those ages of marrying, many people will come to a place in which they feel like they're missing that boyfriend, girlfriend, that spouse, that love of their life. And they begin to look for that. Oftentimes, couples get married and they realize, wait a minute, this didn't complete me. Now what we need is we need a child. And they begin to look for that meaning in that child. In the beginning, God did not go, man, I just need something. So why make man? 
It, it could be that God made man saying, look, let us make man and so that man can then worship us and we can have all of the adoring nature that comes from man towards us. But if that is the case, then why give man a choice? The angels are sealed in their decision, and so the angels glorify God day in and day out in heaven, and they don't have that choice any longer. So if the only purpose in making man was so that they could bring glory to God and worship God, why not make them so they had no choice but to do that? But if in making man, there was more to it, if at that moment, as God has this imaginary conversation or this, this discussion, God says, we have such perfect unity in us. How much greater would this fellowship be if there were more people involved in this fellowship? And so God decides, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Let's go down and create a place where man can exist. And so the world is made and all of the vegetation and the seas and the stars and the sun and the animals. And God comes to the sixth day and he says, now, let's make man in our own image. And in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says God took the dust of the earth and he formed it together. And then he breathes into man, and man became a living soul. Now, I think that's interesting on so many other biblical levels. Oftentimes, we think that we are a body that has a soul. But according to this passage, we are a soul that was given a body. We became a living soul. But, but anyway, as God takes that dust and forms that dust, there is nothing at that moment that God doesn't know. Oftentimes, we think and we make statements like, hey, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? You know, God was never surprised by anything. But as God comes down and he brings the dust together, in every little speck of dust, God can see the faces of the billions of people who would inhabit this earth. And in every face, as he puts the dust together, he sees those who will reject and those who will accept. At the moment of creation, at the moment that God breathes life into, at the moment a soul becomes living, God knows all of history. And yet, he still makes. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you come to that place where you make man knowing all that is going to occur, knowing every sinful thought of every man, knowing every sinful action, knowing every murder, every genocide, everything, and to still make man? You see, God makes man for one simple reason. Because he wants man to love him, and he wants to love man. He doesn't have to. It, and even in that moment, 
And in placing Adam and Eve in the garden, he gives man a choice. Of all the trees of the garden, you can freely eat. But of this one tree, thou shalt not eat. And the reason is not because of the tree. The reason is because he gives man a choice. Because can you truly love if you have no choice? You see, he didn't have to. He didn't have to give man the ability to choose. But he does. And he gives man the ability to choose so that man can choose him. It's why we were created. And at this moment, as God creates and he puts Adam into a position, the reason is because he loves Adam. He loves mankind. All of us at that moment enough to say that I will make you because I love you. And he creates man. And Adam and Eve reject God. They choose themselves, each other, over God. At that moment, instead of killing them, he says, look, let me teach you about a sacrifice. And he instills a sacrifice that he would one day give later. He puts it in place. Along come Cain, Abel, Seth, and man begins to populate the earth. Population grows so immense that in the days of Noah, it is said of man that every thought of man is only evil continuously. God loves man so much he makes them. He places them in a perfect utopia. And man rejects God. And man continues to reject God for hundreds and thousands of years. And in the days of Noah, mankind as a whole had truly rejected God. So what God does is to show his love, he gives man another choice, another chance to choose him. Though man rejects God, God actually in love comes in and brings a flood. You say, how is that in love? Because for those that would love him, he gives them another chance. Have you ever in your life just wanted a clean slate? You just kind of wanted to start over? Oftentimes in our hearts we go, man, if I could just start over in a new environment, all of these things that I struggle with, I wouldn't struggle with them anymore. I would have a better attitude. I would have a better disposition. I would be more right with God. And so God says, look, I'll give you that chance. Everyone is destroyed in the flood, except for Noah, who was righteous in his generation, who loved God. Noah and his family, though God destroys the rest of man, Noah and his family get another chance. They get a chance for not just them, but for the entire human race. So Noah and his family, they go on the ark, they, they see the horror of destruction, and then they see the joy of of a remade earth. Now, I don't know what the earth looked like before the flood compared to after. We know that there was a great upheaval on the earth, that the ground broke open. I believe that many of the things we find most beautiful today did not exist pre-flood. I don't believe that the Grand Canyon was in existence before the flood. And so there are things that I believe that Noah is the only one in his family who got to see both sides of it. And as Noah begins to see the earth repopulated, as he sees the two-by-two two come off the ark, 
as he sees the two by two become four by four and ten by ten and twelve. And the earth explodes and people begin to come along. And not within millennia, but truly within days, man begins to reject God again. And man continues on. And God helps in other ways to eliminate anything that people think will keep them from loving God. Because God keeps showing, not him, he already knew, showing us that when it comes right down to it, God loves us so much that he wants us to love him. And he keeps changing environments so that we have opportunity to to come before him and to choose him. But at creation and at the flood, God knows wide is the way that leadeth to destruction and many thereby. Narrow is the path that leads to him and few there be. And yet, he still loves us. Noah continues on. There are godly people along the way, but there are many, many more. And as a whole, mankind once again rejects God. This time, God handles man differently than the first time. The first time, he destroys man. He says, look, I will show that given a second chance, man will fail again. Haven't you ever thought, if I were in the garden, I wouldn't mess it up. Yes, you would. We all would. So, this time, instead of giving man a fresh start, instead of giving man a second opportunity, now what God does is far greater. Instead of destroying man this time, God redeems man. You see, just as the dust comes together and it became a living soul, The Word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus Christ comes to earth. Now, we try in so many ways to understand what Christ being God means. We don't get it. We never will. But here is 100% God. 100% man. And here is Jesus Christ. He increases in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. He comes upon the earth. He lives a sinless life. And he goes to the cross. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word begotten, we have often tried to put meaning behind It is another of the same kind. We think of it as one, a child that is born. It's not. Because in eternity past, there was the Word. There was Christ. He was there. They were one. They are one. And somehow, in some way, we will never grasp. Part of the Trinity becomes flesh just to help us see how much God loves us. The very fact that we exist shows, proves, dictates, demands that God loves us. And yet, 
to take it a step further. A Redeemer is sent. And Christ goes to the cross not to suffer a minimalized death, but to suffer death in its most grotesque, miserable, fleshly form. But it's more than that. As Christ dies on the cross, there is the moment in which God turns his back on the sin of man that is placed on Christ. There is a moment that from eternity past, when there was this perfect unity, this perfect union that we never will get until heaven, this unbelievable joy and fellowship and completeness and oneness, that it's torn apart. How can one be torn apart? But at that moment on the cross, it happens. And Jesus Christ is separated from God for the only time in all of eternity, past, present, and future. And he does it. Why? Because God so loved us that he created us knowing that it would hurt him. Oftentimes, as a parent, you have children and you recognize how much you love them. And you recognize what you would give up for them. And we minimize how much God loves us. The very names that God uses for us just draw us to the place of his love. He refers to us as his children not as a child that is born, but as a child that is adopted, a child that is chosen, a child that he goes out and says, I will take you for my own. I am not obligated. I do not owe you. I want you. And he draws us and says, you are heirs with Jesus. And yet what happens after the cross? You would think that all of the world would come to him at that moment. Certainly the tens of thousands that he healed. It's not the case. From that point on, many have rejected God. It, it is not just a few. It is the majority. That day, many rejected him. In the days that would follow, more and more and more people were born and more and more people rejected God. There were those, though, that in the many who rejected Him, there were some that chose to love Him. And when we think today, and, and we come to our world today, and we think of the some that love God, those that are on the narrow path, there is a word that God uses today to refer to those that have accepted Christ. And the word is bride. When you get married, there is a moment. And please forgive me, all of you young millennials. This new thing nowadays where you have the reveal before the wedding, I think it's the dumbest thing. And I've always thought it was the dumbest thing, and I never wanted any part of it. And I told Carol when we got married, I said, look, I'm not going to have a lot of say in everything. If you know me, I'm opinionated. I have to say about everything. But I, I said, I will try to have very little say in the wedding. It's your wedding. We'll do what you want to do. Except for one thing. I am not doing pictures together before the wedding. That's the deal. I'm not doing it. 
And I remember our, our church auditorium was very similar to this. And I'm standing right about here. And when those back doors open, I was 30 years old. I had waited a while. When my bride came in. Now, if you know me, I am not an emotional person. Um, you will go for many years and never see me cry. It was hard not to that day. Because she's my bride. And to this day, she's my bride. And nothing personal, but I love her a lot more than I love y'all. <laughs> and God chooses to call me his bride. Not in any weird way, but in a perfect love kind of way. I love you so much that I will adopt you. I will make you my bride. Sometimes you feel so ugly in life. And yet, as my pastor growing up said one time at a wedding, he said, I have never, and he'd done hundreds of weddings, he said, I have never done a wedding for an ugly bride. He said, on that day, they are just beautiful. And when God looks at you and I, he says, that's my bride. That's, that's the one I love. That's why all of this exists. Is because some love me. You see, the world is not here for Satan's joy. The world does not exist for the corruption of it. The world exists today for the sum, for those who in the dust, God saw their faces and said, I love them, and they will love me. And so I will put up with all the rest of this for the sum. I don't get it. I don't understand why he would. But he did. And so, when we come to Matthew 22, and Jesus, during his time on earth, is asked, what is the great commandment? His answer is so profane, found, and so simple. Master, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with every part of you. You see, the some who loved God is more than just those that accept him. Though there are many who do, there are even fewer who truly love him. You see, we are able, according to 1 John, to love God because he first loved us. Without all of the story as we have unfolded it this morning, without that moment in which we come to the realization that we are the bride of Christ, we can't possibly love him the way that we should. But once we do, once we understand it, then God says, this is why you're made. So the reason you exist is because I love you and you can love me. 
and you should do it with all of who you are. Our theme for our church, and as we've put up new banners this year, is loving God without reservation. It is so hard for you and I, in the flesh in which we live, in the day and age in which we live, in the culture in which we are raised, in what is ingrained in us, to love without reservation. We love to put limits on how much we love everything. And our love is short-term, it is temporal, it fades, it ebbs and flows. God's does not. And he looks to us and he says, here's what I want from you. I want you to love me without holding anything back, without any reservation. And he goes on to give us this threefold unfolding of that love. First of all, to love with all of our hearts. Keep thy heart with all diligence, Proverbs tells us, for out of it are the issues of life. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Our heart is our emotional seat. Emotion can drive us to do more than we would think. Either side. Have you ever been so angry that you did something that afterwards you go, I cannot believe I acted that way? That same emotion, not anger, but the emotion of our hearts, can drive us to accomplish more than we could ever accomplish apart from it. Jeremiah, who says, seek the Lord with all your heart, also teaches us that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That inside of us, our emotions can deceive us to do the wrong thing. But when you take the will of God and you put it through your mind, through the word of God, and you take your emotions and you get behind that, you can accomplish so much more for God with all of your passion, all of your effort, all of your energy. Have you ever been asked to do a task and your heart was not in it? Yeah, you get it done, but it's not there. Have you ever had to do a task that your heart was in it? That this is something you wanted, it was a joy to you, and you loved it? When your heart is in it, you can accomplish so much more. An NFL coach the other day was being interviewed, and he said, we underestimate how emotional of a game football is it's football let me tell you this morning we underestimate how emotional our christian life should be now i don't believe anyone should let their emotions drive them because i believe when you're led around by your emotions you tend to be way too up and down and you make poor decisions you should let the will of god drive you and you should let your emotions empower you. And it's okay. I know, we're, we're Baptists, we can't say that. It, it's, it's okay. It's okay to have some excitement and some passion about the will of God. I made this statement sometime back in a podcast. I said, my love for my children can be violent at times. And when I say that, that means if you mess with them, there is violence ensuing. My love for God should have far more emotional energy behind it than that. With all your heart, with all of your soul, the soul, going back to creation, we became a living soul. So, so the living is just part of my soul. So my soul is the whole of who I am, all of who I am. 
I should love God with all aspects of me. That does not just mean with some internal spiritual thing. Though, we are far more spiritual beings than we want to admit to. You look across the world, and for those who have rejected God, there is still this ongoing search for spiritual things. And people try to find spiritual things in nature. Try, people try to find spiritual things in different types of philosophy. There is a spiritual desire in man. Why? Because we were made in the image of God. But my soul should love and long for God in a special way. It is the total nature of who I am. We are to so love God with our passions, hungers, perceptions, and thoughts. But we are also to love Him with how we talk, what we do with our hands, and how we utilize our talents. How to react to challenges. Our entire being is to display that we love God. My soul, the whole of who I am should have this driving love for the Lord. All of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind. Now, what's unique here is this verse, the Lord is actually referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We have a unique opportunity here to understand something. Generally speaking, we read in English and we understand what is given to us in English. However, in English, we have limits in how much we can understand just from what words mean. Well, in this situation, we have an original word here that is in both Greek in the New Testament and in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Both of these words expand our meaning. Neither one, none of them contradict. They all are the same, but they help us to expand it. And when you look at it in Hebrew, the idea is the word might. This has in it the ability that I have as a person. In the New Testament, the, the word mine here is the veriness of me. It is including all of the resources that I have at my disposal. So when the Lord says, look, you are to love me with all of your heart, with your passion, with your emotions. You're to love me with all of your soul, the total encompassing of who you are, and with all of your mind. It means I am to take all of my abilities that I have, and all that I have at my disposal to use it to love God. Here's why this is great. It means whatever talents I have or lack of talent I may have, I use it to love God. All of my assets I use to love God. When was the last time you thought, you know what? I'm going to use this pair of shoes to love God. But that's the point here. I'm going to use my computer to love God. I'm going to use my car to love God. I'm going to use my bank account to love God. I'm going to use everything that I have, every possession I have, every ability I have. Hey, if you could cook, cook to show your love for God. If you can do great works of art, use your art to show your love for God. If you have incredible logic, use your logic for the love of God. All things whatsoever ye do, do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. I am to take what I have, the all of me, and use it for God. So I come back. What's the great commandment? It is to love me with all of that emotion that you have inside of you. To drive you to levels beyond what you think are possible. To take all of who you are, all of your abilities, all of your strengths, all that I have given you, and to take 
all of it and to love me with it. That is so easy to say. But when it becomes true, there is never a moment in my life in which I can be any different of a person. Some people will say, well, when I play this, I just get a little too into it, so. You don't have that right as a Christian. Because God loved me. I want to love him the way that I should. So I don't have a right to have some activity in my life that makes me behave in a way that's not showing love towards God. I don't have a right to be involved in things that distract me from loving God. I don't have a right to, and you fill in the blank. At the end of the day, my love for God has to be without reservation, without holding back any little part of me. In my love for my wife, if I held back things, if I put my heart into other things, that would bother people. It would. If I say I love my wife, but I spend all of my time out on a boat, you would have a problem with that. But I can say I love God and put my heart into everything else. And we call it being ambitious. We call it being talented. And we have all of these things that we describe it with instead of truly loving God. Here's the test for this in your heart. Does any love I have in this life compare to my love for Christ? The Lord said, look, unless you hate father, mother, brothers, sisters, wives, unless your love for anyone, anything in this world looks like hatred when compared to how much you love me, now, forgive the illustration. It's silly, but I hope it will help you understand it. I love Dr. Pepper. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there was nothing else I would ever need to drink in life, okay? I love Dr. Pepper. Now, I will drink Coke, I will drink Pepsi, and I know there are people who love Pepsi and, and your other, yeah, whatever. But it, compared to Dr. Pepper, I don't want any of them. Again, silly illustration, I know. But it's not like I hate Coke. It's, it's fine. Now, Mr. Pibb, I do hate it, but, you know, it's okay. When it comes to God, I, I don't want it to ever be said of me that, oh, yeah, he thinks his wife's okay. He thinks his kids are okay. No, 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 I don't want it ever to be said of me that. I want everyone to know that I love my wife, I love my kids. But comparatively, I cannot speak for you. I know in my own heart. There are times when that love is not here, it's here. And God says, if it's here, it's off. And so it is a constant reminder that if I'm truly going to love God without reservation, there's no area of my life that he doesn't have complete rights to. My wife has full access to my life. God should have far more. 
Do you truly love God without reservation? Or are you holding back? This morning, we are going to have a bit of a different kind of invitation. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. What I'm going to ask you to do is, is in a, a moment of silence as the piano plays, just, just kind of in your own seat, I'm going to ask you to legitimately ask God this question. God, do I love you without reservation? It, look, most, we already know the answer to that. We already know. So then it becomes a matter of confession. God, I'm sorry. This is in the way. This is in the way. It may just be as simple as God. I don't know what it is that's in the way, but I know I'm in the way. I don't want to love you with part of me because, God, you loved me so much that all of this exists. I want to love you more.